It's good to be here. We are excited that you're worshiping with us. You know, we're live streaming both services now. So whether you're sitting here in person or whether you're worshiping at home online, we're just glad that you're here. This is a week two of Advent, but it is actually week one of our brand new sermon series called The Carols of Christmas. And I don't know about you, but Christmas music has always been a huge part of my Christmas experience. When I was a little kid, my parents, they loved this one particular Christmas album by some band called Glad. And it was a pretty cool album. The whole thing was full of just really great Christmas songs sung a cappella. But this album, it is literally burned into my mind as the background for all of my childhood Christmas memories. I can't think of like opening presents or eating dinner without some song from that Glad album playing in the background. But the funny thing is, you know, all those songs are burned into my subconscious, but if you were to ask me what those songs mean, I don't really think I could tell you. In fact, I thought for the longest time that the lyrics to Joy to the World were, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation's prudes. So I was like, Aren't you glad I don't sing on the worship band too? I am. We hear these songs over and over every year, but do we really ever stop and think about what they mean? Well, that's what this series is all about. Each week, we're going to look at a different Christmas carol, and we'll be looking at what that carol says about Christmas, and then we're going to look at what the Bible says in response to the message of that song. And to kick us off this week, we are starting with a song that's often associated with the beginning of Advent. We are starting with, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But before we dive into that, let's just take a few minutes and pray together. God, we're thankful for this chance to uh, gather as your body and to sing songs and pray and to dig into scripture. Lord, we pray that this Advent season is a time that brings us closer to you. We do want to mention some different things that are going on in our church, God. We think specifically of Judy Shaw and this recent diagnosis of lung cancer. Lord, we pray for her that you give her constant encouragement and peace and comfort, but also pray for her as she goes through the process of talking with doctors and thinking about treatment. Give her wisdom. Help the doctors have clarity so that they can make the best choices for her. And Lord, in all of this, our desire too is that you may be glorified by how everything works together. Lord, we pray that you give us some humility today and a willingness to hear the message that you might have for us in the songs and in the scripture. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, like I said, the uh, song we're looking at today is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And let's just take a, a look at the first verse as we get started. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Now, I love these lyrics, and I love the way that it's sung in that like dark and kind of haunting way. But what are these words trying to communicate to us? What does this song teach about Christmas? Well, in short, this song, it's trying to help us see that Jesus is the only hope for people living in exile. In other words, this song, it's trying to help us see that Jesus, he's the only hope for people living in a world that needs saving. Here's what I mean. 
If we look at the larger picture of the Bible, one of the themes that comes up over and over again is the theme of exile and return. We see this even in the first couple paragraphs of the Bible. God, he creates a home for his newly created hominids where they're meant to live out their lives in the presence of God, fulfilling the purposes that he gave to them. And this home was idyllic. It was utopian. The Garden of Eden, it's meant to illustrate what life is supposed to be like. God, he's dwelling with his creation. His creation is living in harmony with him. Humans are fulfilling the purpose of bringing order and making culture in the garden. This is what home was meant to be like. But then Adam and Eve, they screwed it all up by doing the one thing that God asked them not to do. I mean, literally, there was one rule, and they broke it. And as a result, they were exiled from the garden, destined to try and turn places that would never feel like home into home. And so we end up seeing this idea of exile illustrated in the next 11 chapters of Genesis. So you get stories of violence and brokenness, followed by stories of pride and arrogance, followed by more violence and brokenness. Cain, he kills Abel. Then it says that Lamech is even more violent. And then things get so bad that God sees the only solution as being a flood. And then after that, humans repopulate the earth, and they try to prove that they're more powerful than God by building the Tower of Babel. You get violence and pride, and pride and then violence. And what these stories are doing is that they're showing us that after humans turned against God and were cast out of the garden, they ended up living in a place that did not look, feel, sound, or resemble the type of home that they were created for. This is exile. We once had a place that was home where life was what it was meant to be, but now we live in a world that's not the home that we long for. We are created for a certain type of world, and this is not it. This cycle of home and then exile, it repeats itself over and over and over in, in the Bible. So generations after the events of Genesis, God, he ends up rescuing the nation of Israel out of Egypt, where they're slaves, and he brings them into what's meant to become their new home, the promised land of Canaan. And this is a place that's meant to resemble the Garden of Eden, it's a place where God lives with them. It's a place where they live out the purposes and lifestyle that God had for them. So, for example, God gives them the tabernacle where his presence actually dwelt with them. And then he gave them rules to follow and commandments that were supposed to make their existence into the idyllic existence it was meant to be. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses kind of sums it up. He says this, All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land, and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. Will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that he's giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they'll fear you. 
The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. Do you see how this resembles life in the garden? The people were to be with God, living the way that God commanded them to, and as a result, he was going to make their lives feel like they were meant to be. God was creating a place where the Israelites would finally feel home again. But all this proved to be something the people couldn't live with. In fact, before they even got to the promised land, they had already fallen back into their sinful ways. They were worshiping other gods. They were being ruled by lust and greed. They took advantage of the weak and the powerless, and they constantly broke God's ideals and ended up running roughshod over the new home that God had brought them to. And so what happens? Well, exactly what God promised would happen if they lived this way. Assyria came, and then Babylon, defeating the nations of Israel and Judah, and dragging the people away into exile in a foreign land, where they would end up longing for the home that they'd ruined. And now this is the imagery that our song is bringing to mind when it says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. The imagery, it's of Israel taken captive by the Babylonians and Assyrians and just languishing in a foreign land, knowing that this is not home, that the ways of these people are not the ways of my people, and wishing for the goodness of a place where God dwells with them and where they live according to God's ways. And so the song, it pictures the Israelites crying out for God to come and save them from the soul-crushing exile that they find themselves in. Now, the implication here is this, that this song is using the biblical imagery of exile as a way to describe our current existence in the world. Because when we pause and think about this theme of exile, what we see is what actually makes exile horrible is the fact that while living in exile, we have to live in a place where sin and brokenness make the world around us something that does not feel like the home that we crave in our souls. When the progenitors of humanity were exiled from the garden, what made that exile so terrible is that everything about their new life, it stood in stark contrast to life in the garden. You know, in the garden, they dwelt with God and were at peace with him. In exile, it was different. They now feared God. In the garden, they were fruitful and had great fulfilling work. In exile, they would plow the ground only for it to produce thorns. In the garden, childbirth was all good. In the exile, it was full of pain and fraught with danger. In the garden, relationships were perfect. In exile, brother kills brother. So why does it feel like we work so hard at our jobs only to make no real progress? Why is it that our relationships don't ever seem to work out quite like we want them to? Why is it that our best intentions always have unforeseen bad consequences? It's because we live in exile, in a place that's broken by sin and continues to be broken by it. Exile doesn't feel like home because here our experience is one where we have to come face to face with the brokenness that sin causes all around us. So just in case we're not clear here, exile is that experience of pain and discontentedness and despair 
that results from the knowledge that there is a home where we belong, yet for the present, we can't be there. And here's the deal. Exile is the experience of every Christ follower in this world. We know that our home with God is not supposed to be like this, yet here we are. I mean, just think about the last 10 years. How many school shootings did we have? And church shootings? And wildfires destroying homes? And hurricanes decimating entire communities? COVID-19 and kids whose lives are ripped apart when one of their parents dies prematurely? We've got broken families, abuse, divorce. We have to watch our kids throw their lives away and know that there's very little that we can realistically do about it. And on top of this, we end up causing more pain and suffering by the way that we treat people who disagree with us over how we think we should be responding to all this bad stuff. Another example, last Christmas, the Wall Street Journal, it published an article, and it said that life expectancy for Americans fell for the second time in a row last year. And what was incredible about this is this was only the second time this had happened since World War I. And the decrease in life expectancy, it wasn't caused by cancer or heart disease. It was caused actually by suicide, predominantly in men over 40, and overdoses from opiates. This is not what home feels like. This is what exile feels like. Now there's a good th chance you're uh, thinking, man, James, this is the most depressing Advent Christmas sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of excited to come to church today and hear like a fun sermon at the start of our Advent series, and this is definitely not, not that sermon. Well, here's something to think about. In many church traditions, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it was sung the first week of Advent, and they did it for a really specific reason. They wanted to create a sense of darkness and despair, a sense that the world is messed up and everything is wrong. And why would they do this? It's because for us to truly grasp how amazing the hope we have in Jesus is, we first need to feel like we desperately need to be saved. And so in many church traditions, that first week of Advent would be all about creating the sense of despair. They'd sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and they would read really depressing passages like uh, Isaiah chapter 1, and it would build this sense of darkness, like there's no hope. And then they would read this passage from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 20. But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When this Bible passage was written, the people of Israel had returned from their exile in Babylon and moved back into their ancestral homeland. But now their homeland was actually ruled by an oppressive Roman regime that was just as bad, if not worse, than their time in Assyria and Babylon. And so pretty much in every sense, they were still in exile. And they were all saying, this is not what it's supposed to be like. And so they were crying out to God to deliver them. 
And so in this context, God sends an angel and gives this message to the carpenter, Joseph, from the line of David, saying, hey, take Mary as your wife. What's conceived in her, it's from the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth, call the son Jesus, because he will save the world from their sins. And then Matthew gives a, a little commentary and says, this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel. The point is this. We may be currently living in exile, but the story of Christmas, of the birth of Jesus, it's a story of hope for exiled people. Now, why is the message of Christmas one of hope for our people in exile? Well, three reasons. First, it's hope because Jesus came to deal with the cause of our exile. Second, it's hope because Jesus is God with us as we finish out this time of exile. And third, it's hope because Christmas is the beginning of the end of our exile. So let's just briefly look at these three points. First, the message of Christmas is one of hope because Jesus came to deal with the cause of our exile. Our short little passage says, She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I can identify way too many ways in which I have knowingly contributed to the general state of brokenness and awfulness that makes this world feel like exile. In fact, just this last week, uh, Meredith, she was working on a project for one of her classes, and she needed to mail it to her professor, because this is COVID, and that's how you get work to your professors, I guess. She had to mail it to her professor, and we had fallen a little behind schedule and knew the post office was closing at 2 p.m., but we thought, you know, if we drive really fast, we might make it. So we rushed out of the house and went a little faster than suggested by the speed limit, and we barely got there in time. We rolled into the parking lot of the post office at like 1.54 p.m. We were inside by 1.55. So we got in line and we were abruptly told by the post office worker that the person in line in front of us was the last person they were going to be serving. So, you know, I picked up my phone and it said it was 1.55. And I said, hey, the post office, it doesn't close till 2. And it's presently 1.55. Shouldn't you serve anyone who comes in before closing time? And the postal agent said, you know, we, we have to stop serving people at some point or else we're going to be here all night. To which I responded, yeah, that makes sense, but shouldn't the cutoff time be 2 p.m. and not 1.55? I mean, if you advertise that you close at 2, you shouldn't be turning away customers who show up at 1.55. That's just bad business. Well, she didn't really like that response. Uh, and she said, sorry, sir, that's just how it is. Well, let me tell you this. The way I ended up responding to her did not make the world a better place. And I am sure that that postal worker went home and complained to her spouse about the rude guy at the post office who showed up at 155 and arrogantly demanded to be served. And because she was miffed about it, her kids probably had to deal with an upset parent and maybe even were hurt that when she got home from work, she wasn't in a better mood. And I'm ashamed of this instance, but truth be told, this is like a small indiscretion. And there are many other worse ways I can think about where I have been the problem. And I'm sure that all of you can think of time after time where your thoughts, your words, your actions contributed to the sense of exile and despair 
that we experience in this world, where work is extra terrible because of something that you did, or where people are hurt because of something that you said, or where something horrible happens as a result of your actions. And here's the crummy part. At some point, we will have to give an account to God for all of the things that we have said or thought about saying, all the things that we've done or thought about doing. And when it comes down to brass tacks, none of us are going to be able to say, you know, God, I think I did a pretty stellar job at ending that sense of exile and despair that we all experienced on earth. Our passage says, she'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Man, this is good news. I contribute to the stink of this world. My sin is the problem. But because Jesus was born and lived and died, my sin can be dealt with so that when it comes time for me to give an account before God, he can say to me, your, son, your sins have been forgiven. Jesus has saved you. Now, if you've never come to Jesus and asked him to save you and forgive you of your sins, now is a great time to do it. And if you want to, you can pray this prayer with me right now to accept Jesus as your Savior. Jesus, thank you for loving me, even when I've ignored you and gone my own way. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I realize I need you in my life, and I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. As much as I know how, I want to follow you from now on. Please come into my life and make me a new person inside. I accept your gift of salvation. Show me how to live and help me to follow you always. In your name I pray, amen. But you know, being saved from our sin, it's not the only reason for hope in Christmas. Christmas, it also gives us a reason to hope because with the birth of Christ, God promises to be with us. One of the things that's true about when we become a Christian is that while we're forgiven our sins and made right with God, we still kind of have to live in an incredibly messed up world. And that's why the language of this passage and the theme song for today are so powerful. Check out verse 22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel. Like it says, it means God with us. And of course, this is talking about the fact that God became man and dwelt among humans in the first century AD, but it's also talking about the reality that because of Jesus, anyone who has faith in him gets the benefit of living with God. Emmanuel is something that we get to experience every day. That's why when Jesus gets ready to ascend to heaven after his resurrection, he tells everyone, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So why does this matter? Well, if we're going to try and be people who are living faithfully for Jesus in an exile world, we will need help. We'll need him to be with us, and that's part of the hope of Christmas, that Jesus was born and was Emmanuel and continues to be Emmanuel. Because for those of us who have Jesus, God is with us. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that every day. I love the story of the old man and his wife who would always take drives in their pickup truck just to be together. 
And when they first got married, their pickup truck, it had a bench seat and no seat belts. So the wife would snuggle up close to her husband while he drove. But as time went on, they got a new truck, a truck with like bucket seats and, and seat belts. So no longer did his wife sit as close as possible while they went for their evening drives. And one day she turned and said to her husband, I miss the days where we used to sit and snuggle on our drives. He looked at her and he said, well, I'm not the one that moved. That was a joke. <laughs> Thank you. For those of us who have Jesus, the truth is that God is with us and that he doesn't move. The question becomes whether we are trying to stay close to him. So let me suggest a practice for you this week that helps us encounter the intense reality that God is with us. And Pastor Mike, he suggested some really similar practices during our last series, so this should sound familiar. But this week, try and set aside a few minutes a couple times this week and, and do something I like to call a God hunt, where you scour your week hunting for all the ways that you saw God at work. And to help you do that, you can ask questions like these. Did I see any answers to prayer this week? Did I see any evidence of God's care this week? Were there, was there any unusual linkages or timings this week that looked like God was at work? Did I receive any help to do God's work in the world this week? These questions help us reflect on the everyday happenings of our lives and see how God actually is with us. Christmas, it gives us reason to hope because with the birth of Christ, God promises to be with us. And finally, Christmas provides us hope because the birth of Jesus is the beginning of the end of our exile. Christmas isn't the end of the story, and neither is Easter. The end of the story comes sometime in the future where Jesus returns in order to make right all that's wrong. The book of Revelation says it like this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he'll dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. At some point, Jesus will come back and will shepherd us into a new age where we finally are home. When I was a youth pastor, we had a student who was removed from his family by Child Protective Services. And that night after he was removed, his parents went on a real bender, and his mom ended up overdosing and dying. And CPS called me that night, and they asked if I'd be willing to show up in the morning for these kids and be there when they broke the bad news to them. And I remember sitting at home that night with Meredith praying and being so broken by how awful the situation was that all I could pray was, Jesus, please come back soon because I don't know how much more of this we can take. The good news is that he is coming back. And Christmas gives us hope because with the birth of Christ comes the promise that he will come back and make right all that is wrong. We have a future to look forward to where we are actually home. And Christmas, it provides us with hope because the birth of Jesus 
is the beginning of the end of our exile. Now this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's dark and it's haunting, but it helps us see clearly that we are all in exile in this world and the only hope is Jesus. Hope because he saves us from our sin. Hope because he is God with us. And hope because his birth is the beginning of the end of our exile. Let's pray. God, thank you for the fact that you came to earth, became a man to save us from our sin. Thank you for the promise that you are with us every day, that you are Emmanuel. And Lord, thank you for the promises that someday you're going to come back and that we will finally be home. Lord, our prayer is that while we live in exile, you may help us be faithful to you, that we may try and do what's right and not contribute to what's wrong. Help our church be a beacon to this world, God. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.